0: in that crowd, watching Jesus, his body being torn apart in the middle of that public square. It was over. Three years of dreams, after three years of walking away from life as I knew it, three years of miracles, three years of hope for what could be, and now it was over. As I stood there, in that courtyard, trying to conceal who I was because I was afraid of the same fate as were my friends. Memories of Jesus flashed through my mind. I remember the, the first time, not the first time I met Jesus, but the day I decided to follow him. We were down by the, the Sea of Galilee, the port in Capernaum. And we had fished all night, caught nothing, were, by the shore with our boats, cleaning our nets, mending them. Jesus was there as he often was on the seashore. He would come there and he would stand on the beach, hills behind him, kind of a little amphitheater. That day he asked if he could use my boat. Well, the boat was moored a few yards from shore, so I said sure, so he stood in the boat, a little bit of an amphitheater with the beach and the hills behind it, and he spoke to the crowd. And when it was over, he he asked me to go fishing again, which didn't make a lot of sense to us. We'd been fishing all night, we hadn't caught a thing. And we respected Jesus, we knew him. He was a pretty good carpenter, but he didn't know a thing about fishing. But he told us to go fishing, and so since we had a good relationship with him, he was kind of a casual friend at that point. We'd listened to his teaching. I said, okay, Jesus, we'll go fishing. So I took our boat out a couple hundred yards, Not too deep for our nets. And we started laying down our nets. We had a big boat, about 27 feet long, seven feet wide, four and a half feet high. Boat that could have 15 or 20 individuals in it. We had big nets, we had drag nets. They would have buoys on the top and lead weights on the bottom, maybe span eight or 10, 12 feet. Go in those areas where it wasn't too deep, those drag nets would catch everything in their path. So we started laying out this dragnet, 100, 150, 200 yards of it, and what we would do is we would take it out and make a big circle, and then we would pull the ends, both ends, and begin to put them back in the boat, and anything that was in its path, we would catch. We'd throw back the rough fish, take the rest to market. Of course, we hadn't caught anything all night, but we began to retrieve those nets back into our boat, and it went quickly at first, as it always does, but. Then it felt like we were snagged on something because usually you get all the way to the end of the net and then there's a few fish in it and that's what we sell, but in this case we were just partway to pulling it into the boat and we begin to be, feel some pulsations on the net and it, it wasn't a snag because it kept coming but slowly and we recognized we're dealing with a catch we've never dealt before in our fishing lives and our hearts jumped. And we didn't have time to think about anything else except the catch for a while. We began pulling in the net more and more, and long before we normally would, we're pulling fish in the boat, hundreds of fish, then thousands of fish. And we recognized our boat was going to be in trouble. We called to our cousins who were still on the shore and they bought their boat. And by the time we were done, both boats with the weight of that net pulling fish into them almost sank. Best day of fishing we've ever had. And as we were almost done pulling them in, I recognize this wasn't fishing. This was Jesus. And I knelt in front of him and said, my Lord, because I knew that Jesus had everything to do with this. We got in a conversation. He said, Peter, from now on, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave this behind you. I want you to follow me. I want you to be a fisher of men. Well, I took that to heart, parked the boat, And left. So did my cousins, James and John. We knew there was something unique about Jesus. We had been disciples of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had said that he was trying to point us to a Messiah, a future king, and and he pointed to Jesus as that individual. So we were thinking, well, Jesus may be a Messiah, according to John the Baptist, but there was so much more to Jesus. He was more than regal. He was more than kingly. In fact, I remember one 24-hour period where this became crystal clear to all of us. Started out on the sea again, another story from the sea. We're out in the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, we're crossing, it was a great way to get away from the crowds, couldn't follow us. The middle of the night, as was often the case in that part of the world, the Sea of Galilee is in a deep depression below sea level and there's cliffs on the edge of it and the, the sea is just baking in the day from the hot sun and in the evening when the cool winds come over the, the cliffs, they, they drop and they, they hit that warm air and it's a tumultuous event creates storms. Sometimes storms with rain, sometimes storms without rain, just wind storms and that's what happened that night and calm night turned into three or four foot waves, then six foot waves, then six foot waves and swells 10, 12, 15 feet and we'd been out in a lot of rough water but we knew we were in trouble, middle of the sea. We took down the sail, we tried to keep the ship steering right into the wind or going with the wind, but we didn't want to get swamped from the side. We're doing everything we can to keep ourselves in the right place and to to bail at the same time. Finally, we think of Jesus, maybe Jesus can do something. So we wake him up, he's asleep in the front of the boat, and I'll never forget what happened. He stands up, boat turns sideways. I see a wave coming that's gonna swamp us, and he just says, peace, be still. And in moments, no wind immediately, and then the result of the wind, no waves. A sea like glass. I looked at my friends, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And it continued, we got to the shore. I never wanted to hit the beach so bad in my life. Get out in the shallow water as the boat hits the sand and I, begin to walk on the beach, Jesus the same, and two men come running towards us, and it was terrifying. They come running out of an area that's like an ancient graveyard, caves on the side of a hill along the sea. They come towards Jesus. They weren't coming towards us. They were coming towards Jesus. We just were afraid of them naturally. They were naked. They had scars. They had welts where you would have chains. They had had broken out of prisons. They were criminals. They were screaming at us. And as they came to Jesus, the most unusual thing was said, they said, Jesus, like they knew him, son of the most high, don't torment us before the time. Never heard anything like that before. Jesus began to talk to them. One of them said his name was Legion, which means many, and it dawned on the rest of us these men were demon-possessed. And these demons had literally recognized who Jesus was. Jesus, after talking to them for a few moments, cast the demons out of them. Those demons looking for other hosts saw a herd of pigs on the hill. They, they went into those pigs, and three or four hundred pigs went down the side of that hill and into the sea and, tumbling on each other, drowned. And The people who herded them went back to the town. They'd suffered a significant economic loss. As a result of that, they came out. They asked us to leave, but as they did, they saw these two men who they had imprisoned, These two men who had broken free from the local jail, now clothed and in their right minds, talking to Jesus. We left that area. We weren't welcome. Went back to Capernaum, and as we got out of the boat again, people had seen us coming from a long distance, so the shore was full of people. Jesus has already performed many public miracles. A man comes running to Jesus right by the edge of the water. His name was Jairus. He was a synagogue ruler, sort of the individual who was in charge of the synagogue services and ran the synagogue, a highly respected religious figure in that town. And he came to Jesus. He fell on his knees. He said, Jesus, my little daughter of 12 is sick. She's deathly ill. Can you come? Please take care of her. Heal her. So we started to head towards Jairus' house, and as we did that, there was a woman who was trying to weave her way through the crowds and be as inconspicuous as possible. She was a woman who had a problem since she became a woman. She began to bleed, and she never stopped. It was an embarrassing condition. and In our culture, it had significant implications because a woman and her husband were typically not together during that time in a woman's experience, and so if she was married, she would have been divorced as a result of this. And a woman in that condition couldn't go to synagogue or temple because she would make people ritually unclean. She couldn't touch anybody. She was to remain private during that time. So this woman couldn't have the family she longed for, and she couldn't worship the God she loved in public. And she had spent all of her money on doctors for 12 years. She was now poor from her condition, trying to get help, and nobody could help her. But she had heard about Jesus, and so she's weaving her way through the crowd. She's only hoping she can just touch him. She doesn't want to talk to him. She doesn't want any attention. She just wants to touch the hem of his garment in hope that with her faith and his power, she'd be healed. And so she does. And she was. She immediately felt it in her body. Jesus also felt it that power had gone out from him. So he immediately turned around, and he said, who touched me? And of course, where the disciples were saying, well, everybody's touching you. There's a crowd of people around you. They're all touching you. He said, no, who touched me? And as the woman was slinking away, her eyes went back towards Jesus, and their gazes touched. She came before him and said, it was me, and she told her story. And he said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. About that time, somebody came back from Jairus' house where he'd been headed in the first place and said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus basically said, Jairus, don't listen to them. She's just asleep. She was dead. We continue to head towards Jairus' house. Jesus is saying, have faith. We go into his house and he takes myself, James, and John and the parents goes into the room where the daughter is lying dead, body growing cold. And he takes her by the hand and he says, little girl, get up. Her eyes light up. She sits up. She gets up. She begins to serve the people in the house who are there to mourn her death. And in that 24-hour period, we recognize that Jesus can do anything. He has power over the forces of nature. The wind and the waves obey him. He has power over demons. He has power over sickness. He has power over death. And we recognize that this is beyond messianic. This is beyond regal. He's beyond a king. This was unlike anything we'd ever heard of in the Old Testament. And eventually we figured it out. Sometimes he would ask us, who do you think I am? And we would guess the Messiah, maybe a prophet, somebody like Elijah. And finally we figured it out, he's more than a Messiah, he's God. He was Jesus and the Son of God. Well, that just made us more excited because if we have a Messiah who also has God's powers, think of what that can do for us as a nation. We can overthrow Rome, we can be free again, we can return to the days of David and Solomon where Israel was a world empire and we were thrilled with that. And then as we're excited about the future with Jesus, who's God, he begins to have these morbid conversations with us about death. We're gonna go to Jerusalem where I'm gonna be betrayed to be arrested and tried, crucified. Made no sense. And one time I corrected Jesus, and we don't need to talk about that. We continued towards Jerusalem the week it all happened. And it was exciting because The talk of death subsided for a little bit and on Palm Sunday he owned who he was. He rode into Jerusalem in an unbroken colt in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 that, that the Messiah would come that way and so that day we knew, okay, he's finally owning in a public fashion who he is and there were thousands, tens of thousands of people thronging the roads. Two and a half million people were around Jerusalem that weekend and thousands had come from Galilee and knew him and knew of his miracles and they were shouting Hosanna, which means Lord save us. It was, it was a cry to restore the kingdom of David, the glory days of Israel. And Jesus owned it and accepted it. No more talk of death. The next day he went in the temple and cleaned it up and offended a lot of the religious leaders and from that moment on there was a price on his head. On Thursday night he was back to his morbid self he started talking about how one of us would betray him. One of us, one of the 12, who'd given up everything to follow him. I said, said, nah, none of us are gonna do that, Jesus. He said, oh yeah, it's gonna happen. I said, well, okay, in a private moment, Jesus. Maybe they will, but I won't. If anyone will stand with you, it's me. You can count on me. That's when Jesus told me that he couldn't count on me, and before that night would be over, I would deny him three times. We went to the garden. Garden, where we spent a lot of time. Soldiers came to arrest him, along with Judas, who ultimately betrayed him. And as they came, Jesus didn't lose his powers. When they said, Where is Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I am he. And at the sound of his voice and his power emanating from his divine being, they all fell to the ground. He was still God, nothing had changed same man who had power over nature, evil, sickness, and death had those powers in the garden where he was betrayed. He demonstrated a few minutes later as they were resting, I took out a short sword and I started hacking away trying to defend my Lord. I I got one of them. His name was Malchus. Cut off his ear. Jesus stopped the whole scene, took that ear, and put it back on Malchus' head and healed him. He maintained all of his powers, yet he let himself be taken. It made no sense. He's Messiah and God. He doesn't flee, he doesn't use his powers. So they took him and put him on trial in the middle of the night. There were more illegalities in that trial than I can list in the time we have. He was in the high priest's house back and forth from different authorities. Witnesses were messing up their stories. They couldn't convict them. Finally, Jesus just owns who he is, and he's accused of blasphemy and condemned to death. Well, Israel had no power over the sword. They had no power to execute anyone for capital crimes because they were a conquered nation. So the religious leaders, early in the morning, right at dawn, took him to Pilate in his praetorium, governor's mansion for trial. Pilate interviewed Jesus, knew that Jesus was no threat, but Pilate was a politician. And he had a history of pretty abusive behavior with the Jewish population, so he saw this as a way to be okay with them. And so he gave in to their demands and said Jesus could be executed. First part of execution was called a flogging or a scourging. Took a short-handled whip 12 to 18 inches long. One end of that whip were about eight, nine, ten strips of leather, six to eight feet long. Called it a cat and nine tails. The end of each strip of leather was a piece of bone or lead. They took Jesus and they tied his hands to a post on the ground. They pulled his robe back over his back. He was bent over the ground and They began to apply that cat of nine tails to his bare back. This was not a whip meant to punish. This was a whip meant to kill, because when the whip was applied to Jesus, every one of those tips sunk in his flesh. The whip would not withdraw until it was jerked back, and with it came parts of our Lord. And over and over they hit him until he was in a pool of blood not recognizable as the person I had known for three years, so beaten and torn that you could see his organs through his back. Not a sound from him. They took him from there, they gave him the cross member, the cross beam, the horizontal beam of his cross and made him carry that through the city. Got to the place where he was to die he couldn't carry it the whole way. He was bleeding to death already. Got to the place where he was going to die. They call it Golgotha. It means the place of a skull. A rock formation looked like a skull. And there they were vertical beams that always stood like trees there for crucifixions. They took this horizontal beam and they nailed him to it. And then they used a pulley to pull him up. They set it on the vertical beam. They tied it together, nailed his feet to it. And there he hung between heaven and earth. It was over. But there were a couple of very strange things that happened that, that made my mind wonder if more was going on, if, there, if something was going on that I couldn't see in that moment. Because at noon that day, from noon until three, pitch black, so black that historians say that you could see stars in the sky at noon. And these weren't our historians. Darkness was a sign of judgment. In any ancient culture, we we knew that the gods or God was punishing when that took place. And now we know that in that moment, God the Father was punishing Jesus in his body for the sins of the whole world. For every bad choice that I had ever made. For the three betrayals that very night before. Jesus was paying the price for those and Jesus said something incredibly strange in those moments. Right before he died, he, he, he shouted out, Tetelestai, which means it is finished, which made no sense because it sounds like he's sort of done and losing, but it was actually a victory chant that Roman armies would use when they, when they came back from a battle and had won. It was Jesus' way of saying he had won, and here he was hanging on a cross, and he's shouting out a victory chant, and it made no sense at the time. But now it does, because now I understand thats it's what he always intended, it's why he came. It's what he always wanted to do. Messiah and Son of God came primarily to die for me and for you.